Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. I breathe in the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Hollies for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and a wicked good podcast. My name is John McAdam. Before we get rolling, uh, I invite you to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. We're going to give you even more reason to do so in a minute. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has Moondog Maine and Don Morocco fighting with chairs. This came up on Twitter today. Someone asked, what's the deal with the ECW big ass extreme bash? And I explained where that came from. Allegedly, a rival promoter hired someone or had someone go to the ECW arena and cut the tires of multiple fans. Uh, cars and again all allegedly <clears throat> and paulie and this guy was morbidly overweight so paulie dedicated the next show to him as the big ass extreme bash so that's the kind of information you get both here on stick to wrestling and if you follow me on twitter what else um usually it doesn't matter that we record this maybe six or seven days before it comes out Today, it made a little bit of a difference because Paul Orndorff passed away last Monday, the 12th, and not on the 11th, excuse me. And by the time this comes out, there's going to be multiple tribute shows to Paul Orndorff, but I'm hoping we're doing a different one. And before I get rolling, uh, if you hear background noise, number one, up here in Nashua, New Hampshire, it looks very thunderstormy out there, and that's what's in the forecast. And according to my guest, Ricardo Coleman, he his neighbor is playing whack music really loud. R- Ricardo, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. It's been a long time, and uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's make it happen. <laughs> it's been too long, man. But thank you for coming on. Before we get started on a Paul Orndorff tribute, a unique way of doing it, I think, we took some questions about Paul Orndorff on the Facebook page. If you were part of the Facebook page, you could have been part of this. Jerry Joy asked to name a wrestler you wish Orndorff could have had a long-term feud and series of matches with. Any thoughts on this, Ricardo? Ooh, um, I would have to say maybe Tito, uh, Tito Santana. But I, I honestly think, I don't know if they got together, but I think he and Don Morocco would have been interesting uh, with him as the face and Don Morocco as the heel. I think, you know, I would have tried out few matches around the country to see what their chemistry was like but i i think i think it would have been an interesting um interesting matchup actually morocco and orndorff well they wrestled at wrestlemania 2 and they wrestled mm-hmm. a few more times in 1986 and i mean that would have been a dream match in like 1981 oh yeah 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 that 1981 paul orndorff was a bit of um i don't know i don't you can say he was a lot more raw, uh, a lot more green, but um, he just he had, I don't know, his intensity was was on a, on a level ten at that particular time. I mean, you could tell you were looking at just an unbelievable athlete. I know Orndorff wrestled Ric Flair in seventy eight, seventy nine in, in Mid Atlantic. As a matter of fact, he and Greg Valentine went around the horn against Paul Orndorff and Jimmy Snuka when they were tag team champions. And Orndorff and Flair 
had a series on WTBS 1982, but I wanted to see more of it. Like, I wish there was more footage of Flair versus Orndorff from that period out there. Like, you know, they talked about the match on TV. They had interviews, but none of us that didn't go to the Omni got to see the match. So I think ultimately my answer is Ric Flair. Wow. You know what? I remember a couple of confrontations that Orndorff and Flair had on the um, WTBS show, and it, it was pretty exciting. Like, I really, I would have loved to have seen it too, but it's Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, who's going to make a, a trip to Atlanta, Georgia, unless you had a little bit of money? <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I had been born five years earlier, I guarantee I wouldn't have been able to pick, okay, this is the match I'm going to see, but like, they're absolutely would have been a Sunday night that I was at the Omni in Atlanta just to go. And by the time I got old enough, by the time I had enough money, like, you know, it was just WCW or JCP, which I could just go see in Philadelphia. But anyway, what would you recommend to watch for someone that only knows his WWF run? Rico, I know what you're going to, I think I know what you're going to say. I didn't watch much of it, but I think you would probably you know, have a better answer for that than I would, but maybe Hogan and Orndorf in Toronto. I think it was the big event. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and definitely watched the the, uh, the match where uh, Orndorf did his heel turn and the lead up to it. Uh, and I'm and I'm mentioning things that, that people can easily find on YouTube. Yeah, um, just this week, WWE Network or Peacock put Mid-South Wrestling from 1981, 82, etc. I thought that was Orndorff's best run, especially when he was a heel uh, feuding with Ted DiBiase. That's something we'll be talking more about later. And, of course, I think it's available on YouTube. The stuff we were talking about earlier when Paul Orndorff was in Georgia, he looked fantastic there. Oh, my God. He looked like he looked like a world beater. You know, I've often said that Paul Orndorff is like the living embodiment of what an action figure would be if, if you know, if they would come to life. I mean, he he had the perfect wrestler's body, but not an ounce of fat on him. And he was just he was he was intense in that ring. And I agree, you know, around 1981, 82, that was his best work. He was a really believable heel. You know, he looked like he could kick your ass, your grandmother, your grandfather <laughs> and possibly your children. What what I liked about Orndorff's physique, like as opposed to a Hogan, as opposed to Kerry Von Erich, I mean, there's bodybuilding physiques and then there's athletic physiques. And Orndorff, it was like he wasn't going for the bulk. He was going for the strength. He always looked that way to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely one of uh, the best bodies in wrestling that I've ever seen, bar none. I mean, remember he was doing the Absorb Being Junior commercial in like yes. late 84, early 85, him holding up the earth like Atlas. Oh, you know what? I had forgotten about that commercial. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It just jumped into my head when you mentioned that. Okay, yeah. Uh, all right. Jesus Salas Rodriguez asks, how in the world did the WWF miss the boat about having a feud with him and Savage or a long feud with Tito Santana for the Intercontinental title. Any thoughts from you, Ricardo? Uh, I, I, you know what? Tito would have been a natural opponent. You could have Orndorff taking the belt and having Tito to chase him. I, I don't know how. But I guess maybe they were just saving uh, Orndorff for Hogan. You know, that was the, the money opponent. And they were right. 
that was my answer. They were just doing, they were in the WWF together for about two and a half years. And during that span, they were just both doing other stuff. Orndorf was a heel during that time for just about, he was a heel the whole time, except for about a year, like mid 85 to mid 86. And they had Orndorf fighting Piper. So it just, it just didn't come together. Well, you know, being in a feud with Piper, I mean, I'm sure Orndorff didn't mind because that's where the money was, uh, working with Piper, working with Hogan. You know, he's working main events. Um, for, for wrestling purists, it would have been great to see him with Santana because I, I really think their styles would have meshed very, very nicely. Yeah, I agree. And when we say, you know, he he was feuding with Roddy Piper, they were in main events in major arenas like Philadelphia, Boston Garden, et cetera. And they expanded it. First, they started with Hogan Piper and it should be Orndorff Piper and Orton would interfere. And then they would give Orndorff a tag team partner, whether it be Hulk Hogan, Bruno Sammartino, Andre the Giant, etc. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's a match with uh, Orndorff and Bruno against Orton and Piper. That was fantastic. A brawl that went all the way around the arena. Like, mm-hmm. I think people should try to look that up, too, and check that out, because you know, that was kind of uh, right before Orndorff kind of went off the cliff. Uh, you know, he had that injury uh, that caused the, the um, atrophy in his arm. Yeah. But that was probably uh, one of the last few matches, uh, the last period of time where Orndorff was really important in the WWF. That match, I think, is available on YouTube. It's from the Philadelphia Spectrum. I want to say August 1985. If I'm off by a month, please forgive me. Yeah, as far as Tito Santana goes, I really would have liked to have seen Paul Orndorff do an angle with Tito Santana and have them do a series of matches. There's a match from St. Louis that's available on YouTube, which is really good. But I think those two would have been great and it would have given them both something to do in late 1984. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it would have been as well received as as the deal with Santana and Valentine. I think you could have easily uh plugged Paul Orndorff into that spot and it would have it would have worked. I think it, it would have worked. It absolutely would have. I meant to say mid nineteen eighty four. By that by late nineteen eighty four, Greg Valentine had the title. Yes. All right. I, I don't know if you know about this, Ricardo. Please tell the story of Orndorff taking out Vader in a shoot fight in the locker room. I heard it was vicious. This is by Ted Henschel. I'll let you tell that story. <laughs> Here's what I heard. Orndorff was part of the office in WCW, and he was part of getting the television coordinated. So he tells Vader, you know, hey, come on, buddy, get out there. It's, it's your time to go. Come on, buddy, let's go. And Vader, I don't know what Vader said to him, but it was disrespectful. Or at least Orndorff felt disrespected. So Orndorff lets him have it. I mean, he pops him with a right hand. Down goes Vader, and Orndorff just starts kicking the guy. and Someone who was there who saw the whole thing, Orndorff was wearing shower shoes. And this guy was like, if Orndorff was wearing shoes or boots or whatever, he would have killed Vader. It was that vicious a beating. So I've heard. That's the, that's the story that I've heard. And of course, Vader, uh, you know, may rest in peace. He, he disputed how things went down. But, they, you know, it's kind of hard to dispute something where you've got a bunch of guys watching it at the same time. Are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it made it made Orndorff, I'm sure, with the boys, uh, a lot more of a legend as far as being a tough guy. You know, it probably put him in the upper echelon with people like Ming and Harley Race and, you know, 
other people who we might get to mention later on. Yeah, I'm going to have more to say about that as the podcast rolls. But, I mean, Vader was not soft. I mean, this guy played tackle or I think he played tackle or guard, whatever, offensive line at Colorado during the Big Eight days. So, you know, it's I, I always thought he was a little bit of a bully and he wasn't careful enough with his opponents. But he was a bad dude. And Orndorff just took him out like it was nothing. Well, you know, a lot of people said that Orndorff uh, had a hair-trigger temper for one reason or another. I don't know if the listeners will remember this, but JYD used to call him outpatient. Yes. Outpatient Orndorff because of, uh, let's let's put it this way, because of a a, a mistake that was made on some of Orndorff's gear that came out as OP instead of PO. And, you know, Dog would make comments about Orndorff not being, how would I say, um, mentally all there. But, you know, it was just from the temper that he had. He had, he had you know, if things weren't going his way or he felt like things weren't right, he had no problem speaking up about it, even even against Bill Watts. No, <laughs> that's another story that I have lined up for you guys soon. Um, let me see. Mark Rowland asks, if he never went to the WWF in 1983 and stayed in the NWA, would he have been horseman material? Mark Rock and Roland wants to know. Rico, what do you think? You know, people often put him in that slot, but I think he was better on his own. You know, they, they look at that arrogant character and they think that, you know, somehow he would fit into that horseman dynamic. I, I don't think he would have been that great of a fit. What do you think? Well, I feel the same way. I think a lot of people, like, anytime you have a, a good-looking cocky heel it automatically makes him a great horseman. I don't see him as a fit, really. And I think the gig, and this is going to surprise people, I think the gig would have been, like, where would Orndorff be in the pecking order of the horseman? He'd be number two behind Flair, right? right. Is that is that spot beneath prime Paul Orndorff? I'm going to say yes, it was. I think it was, too. Uh, you know, Orndorff, in... in of course, this is why we're doing the show. I mean, I think he was an exceptional talent, and I think putting him in the horseman would have diminished him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he would have felt the same way. Um, I just think that you needed a, a certain type of talent to be in a group like that. Not that Paul Ondorf didn't have the talent. He was just a different type of talent. And I, I think it would have been a mistake. Here's another way of looking at it. If Paul Orndorff, there's a lot of ifs here, if he hadn't gotten hurt and if they were able to get him, let's say early 1987, I don't know, when his WWF role was close to over, we'll put it this way. He left the WWF at the end of 87 slash early 88. Let's say he was still healthy, which is a big let's say. Mm -hmm. They could have used him as the guy to take over as the top horseman while you're turning Ric Flair babyface. That would have been, I think that would have worked. I think he had to be, well, that was his nickname in Mid-South, right? He was number one. Mm-hmm. So he would have had to have been number one. Paul Orndorff wouldn't have been believable as somebody's lackey, which often the horseman ended up being. He ended up being Ric Flair's lackey. I, just, mm-hmm. I don't see Paul Orndorff in that role unless you were going to turn Ric Flair and have Orndorff take over the horseman. All right, guys, thanks for the questions. And once again, if you'd like to be part of that, just join our Facebook group. 
I came up with a concept maybe six months ago regarding a, a subject matter for stick to wrestling. And that is going through a wrestler's career year by year and talking about what they were doing right around the time the podcast can't comes out. If that makes any sense, uh, this okay. podcast comes out, I think July 25th. Well, let me see. I can figure that out. Monday is the ninth, 19th, 20, 23rd is coming out. And we're going to talk about what Paul Orndorff was doing on or around that time. But let's say late July of every year. Um, I was originally going to do this with Ivan Koloff or Greg Valentine this week. And then Orndorff passed away. I'm like, wow, we can do this with Paul Orndorff. I know he started in 1976. I could not find any results from July. So the first one I have is 1977 on July 24th, 1977. He and Jerry Bryant in Memphis in the Mid-South Coliseum wrestled the Hollywood Blondes, Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown. Ricardo, I didn't even know, first of all, the Hollywood Blondes were still together at this point in 1977 because Memphis just didn't get a lot of coverage. Yeah, I had no idea that they were still together. Um, you know, I thought they had split by this time, but this might, might have been one of their last dates as a, as a tag team. And I'm, I know... Um, you mentioned Orndorff starting in 76. Did he not start in Florida? He did start in Florida, and he probably wrestled sporadically, which is why I couldn't find anything for, for July 76. Yeah. I know that uh, Memphis was his uh, first big break, and uh, this this uh, match right here would, would be an indicator of where he was uh, going on the cards. I think he finished up after a run with Lawler. I've had a run with Lawler around that time. He did have a run with Lawler. I believe he was the Southern heavyweight champion at one point. And I'm definitely guessing that Jerry Bryant uh, did the honors in this match. Oh, uh, you, you know it. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Nothing against Jerry Bryant. Cause I, I mean, I liked uh, what little I've seen of him, but no, Paul Orndorff looked, sounded and acted like a star. Absolutely. All right. 1978. He is now in Mid-South Wrestling, which was probably still Tri-State Wrestling. Yeah, Tri-State North American title. Paul Orndorff defeats Stan Hansen in the Riverside Centriplex in Baton Rouge on July 29th, 1978. Any thoughts for us to share, Rico? Well, think about it. It was a huge win. It's a huge rub, you know, defeating an international star like Stan Hansen. Uh, again, this list, and I think the listeners are going to start to pick up on it, you know, it's a great trajectory or timeline of where he was, where his career was going. He It was going up and, um, you know, getting a win over Stan Hansen. Wow, that's a big deal. Even then. Absolutely. Even then. Here's where, I mean, in a lot of ways, wrestling is better today in terms of being able to get news out there because. July 29th, 1978, I had still never heard of Paul Orndorff. He's holding a major championship, wrestling in a big enough town, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, against a guy who is an international star, as Ricardo told us, Stan Hansen. Here's the guy who broke Bruno Sammartino's neck, and there's just no one, apparently, in the Mid-South area who is able to provide pictures and news for the After magazines or the Kiter magazines. Once again, I'd never heard of Paul Orndorff. I remember the first time I ever read his name was February 1979 when I picked up a copy of The Wrestler and uh, 
Grand mm-hmm. Central Station in New York, and I see that this guy Paul Orndorff is teaming with Jimmy Snuka, and they are now the NWA Tag Team Champions. And I'm like, who is Paul Orndorff? And he's done all this already. Well, think about it. I, I heard Ron Fuller say on one of his shows that sometimes promotions would kind of um, shy away from getting too much coverage in the in the aftermaths because you know you, they really didn't want people to know how well they were doing. They really didn't want other promoters who might read it to learn about what they were doing in their territory other than what they were being told at the meetings. So that might be why promotions like Portland and trying to think of another promotion that didn't get uh, coverage in the aftermaths, but Portland would probably be the best example. You know, promoters didn't want you to know what was going on in their territory. And so uh, that's probably why he didn't get a lot of press. Uh, I know Memphis got got some coverage, but Tri-State, I never remember Tri-State getting too much coverage in the, in the aftermaths. No, hardly ever. And same thing with Mid-South until about 1981. And you're right. I mean, I've heard the same thing from uh, Bo James, friend of the show and a former guest who will be back with us at some point, oh, yeah. that they didn't want, let's say... I don't know, Eddie Graham seeing a a photo of, let's say, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy and saying, hey, I need to bring these guys in. I can see the charisma pouring off the the photo here. Exactly. It was bad for business. And so until uh, fully explained it, I I never really understood it. But I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you want to protect your stars even back then. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the aftermaths could make a star. I mean, they made Lex Luger a star in 1986, and boom, Lex Luger's gone in 1987. And now you have to pay Lex Luger. Yeah, exactly. So the bigger the star, the bigger the paycheck. Yeah, exactly. And there was no way Florida could afford to retain Lex Luger, especially if they were bidding up against Crockett, who uh, supposedly gave Luger a nice offer. 1980. Once again, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, July 29th, 1980, Ted DiBiase and Paul Orndorff go to a time limit draw. Ted DiBiase was the North American heavyweight champion. They were wrestling babyface matches at this point. I have a story about this. I actually, I saw a, a shoot interview with Bill Watts and Bill used some bad language, so get ready for it. Supposedly DiBiase and Orndorff, like came up to Watts and they're like, you know, hey, we're doing 60 minutes a night of a baby face match every night. You know, we're driving these horrible road trips. It's July in Louisiana. These are not air conditioned buildings. And you're killing us, Bill. And Bill's like, you two fucking pussies. I don't believe this. <laughs> and, and I'm just like picturing this in my head. Bill Watts calling Paul Orndorff a pussy. And calling Ted wow. DiBiase a pussy. Now, the, what I heard about Paul Orndorff being a tough guy back in the 80s, okay? And Paul kind of cemented that reputation with the Vader fight. Before that, it was kind of, you know, kind of an industry secret. If Ted DiBiase had been the one to clock Vader, we'd be talking about what a tough guy Ted DiBiase was because Ted DiBiase was not soft. He, too, had a reputation as someone you did not mess with. Yeah, I'd heard about that reputation. But, you know, Orndorff, you know, that fight wasn't the first fight that Orndorff had been in. 
Oh no. Uh, and Tony Atlas comes to mind. Does Tony Atlas come to mind when I when I mention that? Uh, I had heard about it, heard about that. Oh yeah, the roadside fight where um, you know Paul Orndorff supposedly uh, pulled a Mike Tyson and, and bit poor Tony's ear off. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Orndorff, he played fullback at, what, USF, so you're not going to be soft doing that. And Ted DiBiase was a tight end in college. So, you know, again, I guess my point is that Ted DiBiase had every bit the tough guy rep that Orndorff did. He just didn't kick the shit out of Vader. Right, right. And let me say this about Paul Orndorff. Probably during his first run, they emphasized that he played football. They emphasized that he had been drafted or had a trial with the Saints. Yep. So Saints being a big team in this area, you know, that, you know, made him an interesting baby face, uh, even though the Saints weren't doing well. I heard that because uh, if you if you look at the, the timeline, he was there when it was McGurk territory, Tri-State, and then he left. And from what I understand, he left over a pay dispute he you know he was the type of guy that never thought he was being paid uh enough by the promoter and you know, like most of the boys he thought they were i was gonna say stuff. just like everyone else in the business just like every just like you know in jail everybody's innocent so he ended up leaving and then he came back and so that's in the timeline reflects that i definitely see that and i would be interested to see a ted dibiase orndorff baby face match go 60 minutes I'd be interested to see it, but I just have the feeling it wouldn't be that good as babyface matches tended not to be. Maybe they did the thing where they lost their temper in the middle of it and went at it. But I mean, 60 minutes is a long is, is a lot to ask out of a babyface match. Well, yeah, yeah. But, if, you know, there are two guys that could do it. They were able to do it. And I, I, I deeply suspect I didn't see the match, but I deeply suspect that Orndorff may have played it slightly healed at some point because i don't think they even saw dibiase as a heel at all at that time so you know it would be nice you know if we could find footage of this stuff to know Uh, you never know i mean i doubt it but you never know 1981 paul orndorff has turned heel by this point he is the north american champion defeats jake roberts once again we're in baton rouge louisiana on july 28th 1981 Ricardo, do you know what went on with Paul Orndorff's uh, heel turn in 1981? Well, this is around the time where I got into when I got into wrestling because I got into it during the Freebirds JYD thing, and then you know I, I might have fallen off a little bit, but I I distinctly remember an angle they ran on television where Paul Orndorff was supposed to get a title match. I forget with who, and it might have been DiBiase. It might it might have been somebody else. So Orndorff and Roberts, baby faces. Orndorff misses the title shot. Jake Roberts goes in his place. Jake Roberts wins the title. And then Paul Orndorff shows up. I don't remember if he attacked Jake Roberts. He might have. But I do. I distinctly remember Paul Orndorff taking the, the North American title and throwing it on top of Jake. You know, in other words, saying, here's your champion, right? And... That was an indelible memory because it was like, okay, this guy, you know, okay, he got screwed out of the title, but, you know, Jake Roberts is in trouble. And that was the talk around school, like, Paul Orndorff is totally going to kick Jake the Snake's ass. <laughs> we stealing the title from him. But well, that's I, what I remember. 
I mean, th- there was another key component to the angle. You got, you got everything. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That Paul Orndorff shows up and he's like, I was late because I overslept. Why didn't you guys oh, just yeah. wait for me? And I'm right. like, wait, wait, you overslept for your title match? Come on. Right, right, right. And they revisited this, but you know, the deal was this was around the time where they they created the idea that Paul was obsessed with winning the North American title. And as time went on, we see just how obsessed he was because his brother comes into the picture, right? Terry Orndorff. Terry Orndorff. You know, so he was so obsessed with the title that he was even willing to to sacrifice his brother to get the belt. I remember this. Terry Orndorff was in Mid-South in 1980. He was definitely the little brother in that relationship. He just was, you know, not anywhere near as good as Paul. He wasn't bad either. He just wasn't Paul Orndorff. And then when Orndorff turns heel, I mean, he would practically use Terry as a human shield to get whatever it was he wanted. It was hilarious. It was. (laughs) To see Terry Orndorff getting used like a rag doll. (laughs) Paul Orndorff would just I mean but it was it was his character at that time he was number one Paul Orndorff and he was obsessed with that belt and you know just the depths to which he would sink in order to get the belt it was it was something else it was something to see it was simply awesome television the guy was was willing to use his own younger brother as a foil yes all right, 1982. Paul Orndorff is now in Georgia. He is back as a babyface, and he defeats Ole Anderson on July 25th, 1982 in Canton, Ohio. In my opinion, this was peak Paul Orndorff. Not WWF Paul Orndorff, but babyface Paul Orndorff in Georgia in 1982. I mean, he just looked the part of someone who easily could be I mean, the NWA champion, he was the number one guy in Georgia. I figured if he ever wound up going to the Carolinas, he'd be the United States champion. I mean, to me, this was him at his best. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way he would come out to the podium and just, you know, just the way he was dressed, the way he carried himself, he looked like a champion, a championship athlete. And, um, you know, I got to uh, watch a lot of it on YouTube and it's like, it's, I mean, he was the man and the way that they pushed him, it made everybody else know that this guy had arrived on national TV and this guy was a star, uh, somebody that you really, really, really need to pay attention to. Paul Orndorff would be on WTBS wearing a suit and he looked like a guy, it looked like you were watching the NFL draft and he was the quarterback that got drafted number one. He looked like you said, he looked like a champion. Yes. Yeah. I remember watching Georgia at my friend's house right around this time in 1982, and his mom sees Paul Orndorff, and she literally gets flushed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he was he was a good-looking guy, you know, and he appealed to guys because he, he looked like he could kick ass. You know, he wasn't what – he was different from Tommy Rich. Tommy Rich – you know, had his appeal, but Orndorff was different. Orndorff was, you know, his character was the man's man. You could have a beer with him, and then the ladies, uh, they had their other ideas about Paul Orndorff. So he he hit a, a bunch of different demographics. 
Yeah, I mean, he ha- he had it all when he was a baby face. He had confidence when he was a heel. He had arrogance. He he played both roles roles beautifully. 1983, Paul Orndorff is wrestling in Japan, July 29th, 1983. Uh, double countout against Akira Maeda. A little bit of a story to tell. Paul Orndorff disappeared from Georgia right around March of 1983. He started in the WWF September or October 1983. And the whole time in between, I could not figure out where he was. You know, I was looking through the magazines for information on him. I thought he had just fallen off the face of the earth, maybe taken six months off. No, he had two big runs in Japan. And once again, we're talking about how tough it was to get news back in that day. The magazines didn't cover Japan. So it's like if Paul Orndorff is over there, he doesn't exist. Well, generally, and that that helped a lot of storylines, too, because, you know, a guy would get injured and they would say something on TV like this guy is going to be out for six weeks. Well, you didn't know for six weeks he was gone. They were in Japan. Again, this, this timeline just shows the, the progression of his career. You know, getting a gig in Japan. I don't know if it's as big a deal now, but back then, I mean, those were choice spots for for an American wrestler. So, you know, he he got the spot over there, and I'm sure that had he not gone to New York, I'm sure he would have done very well in Japan over the years. He would have been one of those guys. I agree with you. Um, and Japan, you know, I mean, most of of the listeners here know this. You made a lot of money in Japan, and you were taken care of in Japan. I mean, you just show up, and and you're taken care of. It's not like you have to rent cars like you do in, in and catch flights like you do in America. Like, they just, okay, everyone on the bus, you know, okay, here's your hotel room. Don't worry about checking in, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad gig if you can get it. You know, they expected a lot out of you in the ring, but... Man, you know, the, the fringe benefits were off. The, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, you, you were taken care of as far as like your meals and everything. And, and they did not take you to McDonald's either. Um, right. <laughs> 1984. I went a little bit further up August 4th, 1984, because Paul Orndorff is wrestling B. Brian Blair at the Boston Garden. And I was there. And there's a story about this match where a fan threw a bottle at Paul Orndorff and hit him right in the mouth and busted his mouth open. And Brian Blair, like, later talked about it, and he said Orndorff just got really snug in the ring with him. And Brian's talking to him in the ring. He's like, Paul, I didn't throw the goddamn bottle. <laughs> well, you know, he had to take it out on somebody. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it was his good buddy. But, you know... I, I can't imagine anybody in their right mind ever laying hands or doing anything to Paul Orndorff, especially like at a bar. I mean, he would have turned the bar into a parking lot, like, real quick. <laughs> real quick. And by the way, I was there. I don't remember anything unusual happening, but I do remember that this was a good match, of course. I mean, Brian Blair, by the way, Brian Blair, I just got the news uh, on Twitter that he endured seven hours of back surgery just this week. So I don't think he listens to this podcast, but I mean, we, we definitely wish him the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always thought a lot of be Brian Blair and, uh, Hey, get well soon. Same here, man. 1985. Now by this point, Paul Orndorff has turned babyface as we spoke of earlier. 
Philadelphia Spectrum, July 27th, 1985. It's Paul Orndorff and Roddy Piper in the main event of the Spectrum, and the match goes to a double DQ. Ricardo, your thoughts, first of all, on the Piper versus Orndorff feud. This was a hot feud. This this really, you know, Piper was at the height of his healdom, and uh, Orndorff was a hot baby face coming off the WrestleMania event, and the sky was the limit. He wasn't as... Um, he was intense. It was, it was around this time where he was, he was, he still had an intense character, but there was still, even though Orndorff was a baby face, it was still, uh, it was almost like he had never changed. He was still that arrogant Mr. Wonderful character. So you couldn't really get into him as a baby face as much as you would have had he sort of reverted back to what he was in Georgia. But I mean, it was definitely a hot few. The people were, were ready for it. I mean, I, I remember you know being very surprised at WrestleMania when Piper and Orton walked out on Orndorff, and Orndorff comes to in the ring, and he's surrounded by Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Jimmy Snuka, and all of a sudden, they're like, no, Paul, we can be friends. And then it took like a full six weeks, and back then, that just seemed like it took forever for Orndorff to finally turn full heel, which he did on the first Saturday Night's main event. And Orndorff had a match against Hulk Hogan once again in Philadelphia during this kind of in-between period. And Orndorff wrestled Hogan as a babyface. It wasn't a great match, but it was a different and an, an interesting match. Wow, I wish I could have seen that. You know, Orndorff was good until they made him Hulk Hogan Jr. Yeah. During that run. And it, uh, I could never really get behind him because, you know, he was Hulk Hogan Jr. Yeah, and that's what uh, Bobby Heenan was calling him in the summer of 1986. And as soon as he started doing that, I'm like, watch they turn Orndorff again, even though he basically just turned. And, well, that's what happened. We can talk about 1986, the taping that took place on July 26, 1986, which includes Paul Orndorff as the guest of the flower shop in which Orndorff brought out his new manager, Bobby Heenan. So what did you think of his, his heel turn? I think it was just completely telegraphed. I think everybody in the building or anybody that's been watching the TV shows would know exactly what was going on, what was going to happen. It was still shocking. You know, you, just, you, you didn't know how it was going to be done, but it was it was pretty entertaining, I, I have to say. And then after the heel turn, when he went back to the locker room and everybody was congratulating him, I thought that was pretty funny. That was extremely funny. They start chanting, wonderful, wonderful. And Orndorff cups his ear Hulk Hogan style at the time. I mean, I was a big, I was still a big WWF fan, but I was an even bigger NWA fan. And at the time I didn't like it. I'm like, this is not how you execute a turn by letting, you know, a, a six year old know that Orndorff is turning four weeks before they actually do the turn. Like, you know, Hogan's begging him, Paul, I, I was lifting weights. You could have waited five minutes and then, they have the match with the Moondogs where it's obvious, you know, Orndorff is being a bit of a glory hog. And then comes the big turn. It was Hogan and Orndorff against Bundy and Stud and Orndorff suckers Hogan. I can say that yet at the same time, the point of the whole thing was to draw money. And this feud drew money. Supposedly Orndorff was making $10,000 a week off this feud. 
Well, you know, it goes to show you that maybe we just, you know, we think we know, but we don't know. Because, I mean, when you talked about that show in Toronto, I mean, that was, what, 65,000 people who came to see Paul Orndorff wrestle Hulk Hogan. So even though the term was telegraphed, it worked. So, you know, you can't argue with success. You cannot argue with success. It definitely worked. And perhaps 35 years ago, or maybe even until today, I was just overthinking things. The WWF had a simple, a very simple formula, and it drew. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, a lot of people look at where the WWF went, you know, it became a real life cartoon, but I mean, they were making tons and tons of money. And so even though you hate it, I hate what they did to wrestling. I mean, it's, you know, when you look at the wallet, when you look at the box office, people wanted to see it. Nobody wanted to see it. They wouldn't pay. You took the words out of my mouth. The people ultimately voted with their wallets. Yes, I liked JCP more, but more people liked the WWF. 1987, a newly turned Ken Patera defeats Paul Orndorff at the New Haven Coliseum on June 27th, 1987. Ken Patera, let's talk a little bit about his WWF run. We, you know, we just talked about, you know, we, we think we know everything, but we don't. Ken Patera was brought in. He got a huge push and he just didn't get over. I think he just looked too old and I mean, it's it's not Bobby Heenan's fault that you went to prison for whatever reason you went to prison for. They didn't tell you what the reason was, but I mean, I thought the vignettes weren't very strong. I just no. think I didn't think Patera came across as very sympathetic. And again, he he just looked old. Patera came across as as an asshole. Uh, <laughs> he did. I mean, just, I mean, if you want to. You want to build up a baby face, you know, you could at least make him a little bit more humble. But he got out expecting, you know, business as usual. You know, you should have called me. And I'm like, I mean, it was just he was the most unsympathetic baby face that I've seen since maybe Paul Orndorff. Um, <laughs> because Paul Orndorff, you know, he never lost that that arrogant smirk. You remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Totally remember yeah. that. And, he and didn't so, stop being Mr. Wonderful. No, he never stopped. And then Patera was the same way. Patera, you know, he had, he, he, you know, the arrogance was just was just oozing out of every pore. But I, I will say this, you know, looking at the timeline, you start to see where Orndorff starts to slide down the card. And mm-hmm. his push is starting to be de-emphasized. You know, when, you, when you're losing to Ken Patera, 1987 Ken Patera, you know that, you know, it's getting close to the end. Yeah, plus he had that arm injury, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, by the way, they had big plans for Ken Patera. I know that at one point, the plan in pencil on paper was that WrestleMania 4 was going to be Hulk Hogan against a newly turned Ken Patera, which, I mean, I was 21 years old in 1987. I could have told you that's not going to work. No, I mean, maybe back in 1983 or 1982. You know, mm-hmm. it would have been great, but by 1987, I mean, I'm not saying that they couldn't have done it, but it would have been hard, and it would have been hard. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking the year after Hulk Hogan against Andre the Giant, and I, I just don't see this happening. And you're right, I thought 
you know, 81, 82, 83, Patera was phenomenal. And, you know, just after he got out of prison, which, you know, it obviously couldn't have been a lot of fun for him. He was in there for two years. Right. Uh, you know, that, that took a lot out of him. And it was like the WWF had a blind spot to it. I don't know. Well, you're right. You know, I would never describe prison as fun. But, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. But anyway. So, 1988. Paul Orndorff is out of the wrestling business. I have his last match being April 1st, 1988. We all thought that Paul Orndorff's career was over. He owned a bowling alley slash bar somewhere outside of Atlanta. And we all heard about the nerve damage he had done to his arm. He had the big series with Hogan two years ago. But I mean, it looked like all things come to an end, and Paul Orndorff's career was finished. He spent a lot of time out of the business. Yeah, um, I had heard that he was in Fayetteville, Georgia, where a lot of guys live. A lot of guys in the business live in, in that area of Georgia. And then but there was a rumor that Paul Orndorff is dead. Yes, there was. Yeah, was that around that time? Right around that time, yeah. yeah. And so, as a matter of fact, I had, I had someone asked me about it. I'm like, you know, I would have heard about it by now. He's he's alive. He's running a bowling alley in in, in Georgia. Not a bad deal. But uh, around that time, you know, for a guy who was a huge part of the WWF national expansion, it was pretty curious that he wasn't around. That he wasn't with Jim Crockett Promotions or another company. Even he, you know, a lot of guys would show up in the AWA all of a sudden. Um, yes, so it was pretty. It was pretty surprising that he never showed up there. No, you're right. A lot of old WWF and NWA acts showed up with the AWA, like Nikita Koloff, Ken Patera, Buddy Rose, etc. 1989, the whole year, I have a record of Paul Orndorff wrestling in one match against Kerry Von Erich in Highland Heights, Ohio. This was November 17th, 1989. It got a lot of pub in one of the after magazines. It's like, oh, Paul Orndorff's back. And I'm like, yeah, it was one match. But if you think about it, there's a big difference between, okay, he's not going to be prime Paul Orndorff anymore, but he can get in the ring. Like the rumor was it that he couldn't move his right arm like above his shoulder or something like that. And this either proved that, you know, okay, maybe he's not what he was, but he can still He's a name, and that name is still valuable. Well, I mean, this would have been a dream match just a few years earlier. You know, Paul Orndorff still had a name in the business. He could get in the ring. He could do it if he was motivated. The people there that night, I'm sure they got a treat. I think it ended in disqualification. But just the spectacle of seeing Paul Orndorff against Kerry Von Erich at that particular time was probably worth the, the price of admission. I would say definitely, even just to be in the building, even if the match was rotten, I mean, right. you get to see these guys. And I just think it, it feels so random that the one match Orndorff wrestles the entire year is in Highland Heights, Ohio. I just wonder, like, how the whole thing came together as far as the promoter putting the match together, getting Kerry to come up, getting Orndorff to come up. Well, if anybody out there, you know, happened to be the promoter or worked on that show, you know, they should definitely get in touch with you because I'm sure there was an interesting story behind that. Uh, Definitely. So now 1990, you got a lot to say about this. Paul Orndorff defeats Lee Scott 
on a TV show in the Georgia Mountain Center in Gainesville, Georgia. This is July 25th, 1990. Ricardo, let me ask you this. First of all, what do you think in general of Orndorff's 1990 run in the NWA? You know, I, I watched it and I was at first, I was excited that he was coming in. Uh, he was part of the aptly termed dudes with attitudes <laughs> around that time. I think that was during that period. Was it was Sting, the Steiners, it. and Orndorff. Yeah. I, I mean, I was excited about some of the matchups that could have taken place, but they brought him in as a babyface, and it just didn't work. It just It just didn't work. But not much work. You know, in WCW at that time, so no. I can't really blame him. <laughs> I see this as a tremendous missed opportunity on WCW's part because you've got Sting as your world's heavyweight champion. He's already you've already kind of worn out the matches against Ric Flair, or if you didn't, you're going to be doing so soon. Now you've got Paul Orndorff. No, he's not what he once was, but he is a big, big star. Uh, just a few years earlier, he was in that you know huge money-making feud with Orndorff, uh, with Hogan, excuse me. Any wrestling fan knows who this guy is. They absolutely should have brought him in as a heel against Sting, and you would have had a fresh matchup. Not only could you have you know potentially, I want to say sold-out arenas, but mm-hmm. done credible draws with Paul Orndorff on top, I think you could have done Paul Orndorff versus Sting on a pay-per-view as the main event, like at Halloween Havoc 1990. That is, of course, if you got the right people pulling the strings, which we know at that particular time there were, I mean, yeah, there was some dubious booking at that particular time. But yeah, if you built it up right, it would have been money. But you could say the same thing about a lot of people if you put them together and given them a compelling angle compelling storyline to to get into but it was one of those missed opportunities right you know you make such an outstanding point because i mean Ole anderson was the nwa booker in 1990 and he was really good in the early 80s to give him credit but 1990 i'm sorry he didn't have a clue anymore and you're right ricardo i could have thrown out that concept oh yeah sting you're trying to get him over as your number one guy, here's Paul Orndorff to help get him over. And that doesn't necessarily mean anyone's going to execute that storyline. They, they, they couldn't have put something together. They had talent and they blew it. But I, I think they really mishandled Paul Orndorff specifically here. Well, you know, just another case of WCW leaving money on the table. They were good at that. All right. So Orndorff does not last long in WCW and maybe. Maybe that was part of the problem that maybe, you know, he's still okay. I live in Georgia. You guys record in Georgia, but I'm still more interested in running my business and not getting too involved in in wrestling again. So he's soon gone. 1991, July 20th, 1991. He's wrestling for Herb Abrams, UWF, uh, part of a Fury Hour TV taping in Fort Lauderdale, Florida against Bob Orton Jr., the match goes to a double DQ, as just about every UWF match did. Yes. Yes. It was the double DQ hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> double count out I mean, or double DQ. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they were still playing off the WrestleMania feud. And, you know, I actually saw this match on a local card. 
And it was, I mean, two old pros going at it, but I mean, you could tell that these guys were on the downside of the career. It was not the Bob Orton of old, and it definitely wasn't the Paul Orndorff of old. You know, nothing too memorable here. No, and um, right around this same time, I saw a match, not live, I saw it on tape. It was Paul Orndorff against Austin Idol from Philadelphia. Joel Goodhart put on the show. And if it's on YouTube, if you want to see potentially the worst match of all time, check this one out. This was incredibly bad. And I'm sure a lot of it was the two of them just kind of laughing and say, okay, we're not going to break a sweat. We're just going to take this guy's money. But it, you know it, what? What's that? I, I had insomnia the other night, and I think that would have been a cure for it, um, <laughs> from what you're telling me. And I, I really appreciate it, and it probably will work better than melatonin. So <laughs> I, I appreciate I, it. I'm not sure if you would fall asleep or you would just get stimulated by the marvel of how horrible this match was. And I'm being totally serious when I say it is a contender for the worst match of all time. Well, but, you know, I'm a huge fan of so bad that it's good. So that's you know, it. Shout uh, out to the red letter media out there. <laughs> <laughs> 1992, Paul Orndorff has what I consider a really fun run in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. This is part of the Fire on the Mountain Super event held August 8th, 1992. Paul Orndorff was defeated by Ronnie Garvin in over 19 minutes. Ronnie Garvin versus Paul Orndorff in Smoky Mountain Wrestling was a fun feud. I don't care what anyone says. Have you seen any of it? Yes, I have. And, you know, this is around the time where Orndorff proved that, you know, maybe he wasn't physically what he was uh, years earlier, but he still had the psychology down. The whole feud consisted of Ronnie Garvin absolutely driving Paul Orndorff crazy, you know, and uh, Nitro Danny Davis uh, got involved. And I think uh, Dixie Dynamite got involved. It was, you know, essentially Paul Orndorff breaking people's necks in the, in the Smoky Mountain area, and uh, it was it was great. It really was. Yeah, Orndorff came in as a babyface and was quickly turned heel. He injured Hector Guerrero and Dixie Dynamite and Danny Davis with the pile driver. So then he starts feuding with Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie Garvin steals that red and black robe that Orndorff is so well known for. And every week, Ronnie Garvin would come out, and he had cut something else off of the robe. Like, he cut the arms off and came out with the armless robe, and and Orndorff would be going nuts. And then he decided that the robe was too long, and he wanted it to be a vest. It was was just, (laughs) I don't know. You know, if if someone listens to the Jim Cornette drive-through, please someone ask Jim Cornette if Jim bought the robe or if, if Orndorff just donated it because it was a a really I thought it was in a way it was really cool on Orndorff's part if he did just donate the give you the robe to do this angle by the time it was over it was just a patch yes (laughs) (laughs) who knew who knew Ronnie Garvin had skills as a tailor (laughs) (laughs) he went to that tailoring school up in Montreal yeah right hidden talents you know all right 1993, once again, Paul Orndorff is with WCW. And at this point, and this would go away quickly, I was still buying him as kind of a major star. Uh, when Ric Flair came back, I was like, you know what? The, the first 
pay-per-view Rick does should be Ric Flair against Paul Orndorff because it was, once again, that would still be a fresh matchup. Uh, but in this case, on July 26, 1993, Ron Simmons defeats Paul Orndorff by DQ at a WCW house show in Calhoun, Georgia. So Paul gets to stay close to home and does the job for an up-and-coming star. Well, you know, at this point, you know, I guess they were interested in him, um, you know, giving Ron Simmons the rub, even though Ron Simmons had been the world champion earlier. Ron was kind of in a holding pattern at that time. It wasn't, um, you know, at some point or maybe another show, we might be able to get into why that was, you know, why Ron went from having the world's title to being uh, sort of in the middle of the car. But, you know, uh, neither one was really going anywhere. Uh, he was, I mean, Paul was getting a little push based upon his Smoky Mountain work, but they weren't going to give him a huge singles push. No, and I, I kind of hadn't figured that out when they brought him in. That, you know, it kind of looks like, I mean, he he hung around WCW for a long time, as we would see, but it looked like he stayed close to home when they weren't doing television. Right, right. And, and I did note, you know, Calhoun, Georgia is in the neighborhood, you know, so it shouldn't have been a problem with him doing the J-O-B, you know, and then yeah. sleep in his own bed at night. So not bad. Not bad. Makes sense. 1994. He is now part of the pretty wonderful tag team, Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma, WCW World Tag Team Champions, and they defeat Marcus Alexander Bagwell and the Patriot at a WCW house show in Jacksonville, Florida on July 30th, 1994. Del Wilkes, the Patriot, recently passed away, and I did not mention it. I apologize for that, but I always liked Del Wilkes. Rest in peace. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I thought a lot of him as well, and you know, rest in peace. And I thought, you know, he had everything it took to to be a star, and he was for a little while. He got a great push in the WWF, and um, you know, condolences to uh, his family. Absolutely, he was a good football player at the University of South Carolina, and, and showed a lot of potential in the business until he blew out his knee. We talked a little bit earlier about Robert Fuller, or Ron Fuller, excuse me, talking about why he didn't like having his promotion getting a lot of press. Marcus Alexander Bagwell gets on Global Wrestling TV, Joe Pedicino's old promotion, uh, when that came out in, in mid-1992. And before you know well. it, before you know, what was he, the, the handsome stranger or something like that? Yeah, he was the handsome stranger, and he was dressed like a Chippendales dancer, and uh, they had him wearing like a, uh, I forget the type of mask, but it was kind of like the mask that Cato would wear on the Green Hornet. Uh, it was like a Zorro mask. Yeah, it was like a Zorro mask. Don't know what that gimmick was about. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Pedicino had some, had some interesting ideas when he was doing the global promotion, like... Uh, he would have tournaments end with three people in the finals and they do a coin flip to see who, who wouldn't wrestle. I'm like, oh, Joe, why are you doing this? Trying to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the beginning of the promotion was nothing but tournaments and you're already tired of tournaments. Now the promotion is nothing but four weeks of matches for the light heavyweight title. And I was like, oh man, Joe, what are you doing to us, bro? And then the, the great part was you'd never see these guys again. You know, it was this great way to get them in there and feature them on the show. But what we didn't know was, you know, after that tournament match was over, you would never see these guys again because they couldn't pay them. 
Right. They couldn't afford to fly them in. It was the big issue. As soon as I heard that they weren't flying guys in anymore, I was like, you know, this this promotion has already failed. You can't put these guys who have been on TV in Dallas for God knows how many years and just drag them back out there because they're local. Right. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I mean, almost Ron Fuller's point proven that as soon as Mark Bagwell gets on ESPN, boom, he's he's no longer with that promotion. WCW scooped him right up. Well, it's it's one of the reasons why, unless you have a lot of money like Tony Khan or, uh, you know, someone, you know, with enough startup money, as soon as your stars are exposed and they get over in the area, there's this tiger that's just waiting to devour them, you know, and Uh they're going to they're going to start they're going to start poaching your talent, you know, if they're worth a damn. And, you know, that's what happened. But as far as pretty wonderful, I actually enjoy this team. You know, I'm, I know a lot of people knocked Paul Roma, whether he was right for the horseman. No, he wasn't, but he was a pretty talented guy. And I, and I think uh, he and Orndorff had had a lot of chemistry. They did. You know, one thing I, I don't know if I've spoken about this on the show before. Guys have to be careful with their careers because I really believe there's an alternative universe where Paul Roma had a much bigger career than he did. But he got typecast as a jobber on WWF TV for how many years? And as a result, no one could take him seriously. Like even when he did the tag team with Hercules in the WWF, what were they? Power and glory. Power and glory. Yeah. You know, it, it, it looked like a good idea. You'd think it just didn't happen. He was typecast. Well, you know, at one time you would have guys who would take a young guy like that and say, look, you know, you got a lot of talent. Usually it's an old guy on his way down and he'll say, hey, you know, you have a lot of talent. You know, you might want to think about packing up and moving on because as long as you stay here, both that they have for you. And, um, you know, a lot of guys like Shawn Michaels, when he was in Mid-South, he was doing jobs. And eventually they told him, hey, you got to go and look what happened. But I don't think Roma ever had anybody to give that uh, that type of advice. Um, I, I guess he got comfortable up there in New York and I'm sure uh, he was making a lot of money to do jobs, but it didn't help his career one bit. No, it didn't. And you're right. You know, I mean, what are your alternatives? Is is JCP going to bring you in and give you a big push? Is, is Mid-South going to do that? I don't know, but you're right. It seems like he just got comfortable, but I, I agree with you as far as this tag team goes, it worked. You had Roma essentially doing the work and Orndorff, was the big name and Roma kind of got the rub from Paul Orndorff. Which is exactly what the point was putting them together. And, you know, who knows how long uh, they could have kept the team together, but it gave Orndorff something to do, gave Roma the rub. So this is a good idea to put them together. Unfortunately, you know, I don't think you had that many really compelling tag teams for them to work with at that time. So, Hey, you know, you're moving on down the card, and, you know, that, that's the life of a wrestler sometimes. That is how it goes, and and WCW was not in a very good place in 1994. I mean, I was ready to get that phone call from whoever saying, yep, Turner has decided to fold WCW, and, it, you know, thankfully that, that didn't happen, whether or not you liked mid to late 1990s WCW. I mean, at least you had the option to watch it or not watch it, right? Well, yeah, right. and we, you know, 
growing up as a, as a fan of Jim Crockett and uh, the Georgia promotion, I mean, you wanted it to survive. You wanted it to work, but it, it just could never get it together for long periods of time. And, you know, again, it was just one of wrestling's greatest what ifs, because I think wrestling was stronger when you had a WCW, when you had other places to go. And, um, you know, it's just a shame. As bad as it was in 2000, 2001, maybe even 1999, you know, I had people saying, oh, I hate this. I wish it would fold. And I would always say, hey, if it's still around, it can always get better. If it folds, it can't. Right. It's, it's, it's game over. It's a wrap. And we saw what happened when uh, WWE was the only game in town. They didn't have any really any incentive to improve their product because there was just no competition. And and so, you know, it's always better when you have competition. And unfortunately, uh, WCW, it, it just played the string out, you know, just it died a very painful death. It was a very painful death because it it felt like that they were going to get new ownership and just out of nowhere, the new director of programming, Jamie Kellner, says, I don't want wrestling on these networks. And boom, WCW was gone. We had a show about that. But I mean, like I said, I didn't like the late WCW, but I, I certainly didn't want it to fold. And like I said, especially around this time, it really looked like it was hanging by a string. And I give Eric Bischoff credit, he, you know, for a little while he did the right things and got the promotion rolling. Yeah, if he had improved uh, the, the product, the providing, he brought in new talent. He, he tried different ideas, and I think uh, he should be commended for that. I mean, he he had his finger on the pulse of what people wanted to see for a short time, and you know, of course, there are many many reasons why uh, ultimately it it failed. But for a little while, it was something special. It was must see TV. And Eric Bischoff, I mean, I, I can't help it. He cracked me up sometimes. I remember he was doing an old AOL chat, and someone asked him, you know, what do you think of Vince McMahon, uh, his complaints about, you know, WCW doing things that are against FCC rules or whatever. And Eric's like, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask Ted Turner when I see him. Uh, Ted's out playing golf with President Clinton right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Vince is going to win that argument against Ted Turner anytime soon. No, no. All right, 1995, our final result. The Renegade defeats Paul Orndorff at a house show in Fayetteville, North Carolina on July the 29th, 1995. I knew the Renegade a little bit. He was Ricky Wilson from Barricka, Mass. I mean, he's not well regarded in wrestling. I know... They brought in this really green guy who wasn't ready for anything, and they tried to make him the ultimate warrior. I, I can't really defend this part of his career. I just don't just know that everyone, Ricky Wilson was a good guy. Uh, from what I hear, he was a really good guy, but he was placed in a role that uh, where he just, it was an impossible situation. Um, how do you turn down uh, a big check from the Turner organization? But I can remember people being super angry that they tried to pass this guy off as somehow being an ultimate warrior. And, you know, he got the push and, you know, he was beating everybody and he defeated Paul Orndorff at, at a house show. And, you know, when I'm talking about guys going down the ladder, I would have to say this is probably rock bottom. 
It was, and Paul Orndorff's career would soon be ended when he was attacked and pile-driven by the Four Horsemen on an episode of Nitro. And, well, at least he got to retire, right? Right, he got to retire on, well, behind the scenes on his own terms. Exactly. So anyway, we mourn the loss of Paul Orndorff, an all-time great. And Ricardo, I am definitely glad I had you on the show to do this. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for inviting me again. And uh, I just want to say to the people out there, I'm, you know, I really enjoy the feedback that I get and that I've gotten from my other appearances. And uh, just thank you so much for the support. Yeah, you, thank you for being on. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, for all of the great work that he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.